Well, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you on this Lord's Day that he's given to us. I am thankful we get to gather together. If you want to be making your way to your seats, just several things we want to let you know about happening in the life of the church that we want you to be part of. First of all, it is Christmas season. We've already had quite a number of fun Christmas activities. The full schedule is on our website. Go to gatewaybaptist.com and click on news and events and you'll see the remaining Christmas schedule. But two things for this week we want you to be aware of. Number one, Wednesday night is perhaps our biggest and favorite Christmas fellowship. It's the Gingerbread House Decorating Fellowship. Wednesday evening, 6 p.m. in the gym. This is not just for kids. This is for all ages. So you get your friends together. You can come. We have senior adults who come and work together on it. We have families who work on it together. We have youth who come work on it. This is for all ages. The gingerbread houses, are good news, are pre-built. So you don't spend the whole night frustrated trying to build it and get the sanctification of building a gingerbread house. They are pre-built for you. You just get to decorate them. So we'll have hot chocolate. We'll have popcorn. We'll have Christmas music in the background. It's just a fun time to decorate a gingerbread house and wander around the gym, hanging out, getting to know people. So I hope you all will come Wednesday night, 6 p.m. There's no cost. We have everything in stock for you for that. Second of all, this Friday evening for our 50 up uh, members and attendees and friends is a Christmas fellowship at Greg and Cecilia Till's house. So Greg and Cecilia, wave your hand back here. If you don't know them and need directions, they live up in Wetumpka on Emerald Mountain. So not too far away, but if you need directions to our house, come see them or call the church office. We'll also email you this week directions to that. But that's for 50 up. Bring a heavy hors d'oeuvre when you come to feed 12 people. So to make sure there's enough food, if you come 50 up, please bring food to feed 12 heavy hors d'oeuvres. Now let me remind our members, our annual member meeting is immediately following the service. It'll be in the gymnasium. A lot of you have already signed up. We're excited about who all is coming. It's not too late. If you're a member and you're thinking, oh, I forgot to sign up, we have enough pizza for you. Come on. As soon as the service is over, we'll head to the gym and we'll be done by 1.30 today. So I hope you'll be part of that as we think through where we are as a church and where we're headed and also talk about things like the budget and some of those other important things. Well, next we have an elder update from Seth. Yeah, come on up, Seth. So after 10 years of serving as an elder at Gateway, I will be stepping down from my position as elder at the end of the year. I just wanted y'all to tell y'all that myself personally. There's nothing wrong. There's no disagreement amongst the, I mean, there's always disagreement amongst the elders, right? But there's, there's no disunity. There's no issues. There's no anything like that. I'm simply tired after 10 years of service and ready to step back from that position as an overseer of this church. I'm looking forward to a season of just worshiping alongside you without carrying that heavy weight that comes along with being the responsibility of being an elder. Uh, Meg and I, we're going to continue to lead the college ministry. We're going to continue to lead the hopes ministry. Um, and we're excited to see how the Lord's going to continue to work and to move in those ministries. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you all for the honor and the privilege of serving as one of your elders. My testimony is one that demonstrates that this church is functioning well. Megan and I arrived here at Gateway almost 15 years ago, which is hard to believe. Um, I loved the Lord. I was trying to follow him, but I was young and immature and prideful. And you guys, especially the Falcioni and the Watley families, took Megan and I in. You patiently loved us. You skillfully discipled us. Um, and through that, the Holy Spirit did his mysterious and wonderful work of growing and maturing us. You equipped me to be an elder, and then you provided me that opportunity to live out my calling and my giftings. And I just want to thank you for that. Through this experience, we've seen God work in many ways. We have grown in understanding of him and in our faith. We have seen him bring about wonderful and happy things. 
and we've seen him bring about awful and painful things, and we're still waiting on him to bring about other things. We've seen him bring about things that made perfect sense, and we've seen him bring about things that offended our logic and our reason and things that I still don't understand to this day. But without question, through it all, we have seen the faithfulness and the glory of God. Megan, I want to thank you for serving with me. Thank you for loving Jesus more than me. Thank you for praying for me and continually encouraging me into the presence of God through your example. Thank you for ministering alongside me. Thank you for laying down your life for the sake of the gospel. There have been seasons I would not have made it through without your steadfast love and support. And so thank you. The Lord has used you. He is a gift. He has used you to love and to sanctify me. And I thank you for that. And church, I just want to encourage you to stay the course. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Do not get distracted from ministering the gospel by lesser things. The enemy is real. As much as I've, not as much as, but in seeing the work of God, I have also seen the work of the enemy. We will be victorious over him as we continue to believe and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we continue to confess and repent from our sins, and as we worship God with all of our hearts, no matter what comes. So thank you. Thank you for loving God. Thank you for loving Megan and me. Thank you for discipling us, and thank you for seeking after Christ with us. The Lord has used you to bless us in wonderful ways, and we look forward to continuing on in that as members here, but not as an elder for a season. So thank you very much. So Seth and Megan, we love you guys. We're thankful for your faithful service and look forward to your continued service with the college ministry and with hopes and continued friendship. And we're grateful and excited to get a season of rest coming up. We'll be praying for you in that. Church family, we want a chance to honor them and thank them and love them well. So next Sunday evening, 5 p.m. in this room, I know it's getting close to Christmas, but December 18th, 5 p.m. in here, we're going to have a dessert and coffee fellowship with Seth and Megan and a chance to lay hands on them and pray over them. So I know you're all busy with the holidays coming, but if you can... Come next Sunday evening, 5 p.m., right here, December 18th, and we'll have a chance just to fellowship in this room. Coffee and desserts are provided, and have a chance to pray over them and bless them as they continue serving at Gateway, but just in different capacities. If you have questions for Seth, he'll be at the member meeting today over lunch, and you'll get to hear updates on college ministry and host ministry from him there. But you also have a chance, if you have any further questions for him, you can talk to him at the member meeting this afternoon. Now, it's time for us to turn our focus to the Lord as we prepare to sing to him and study his word this morning. And so as this Advent season, we come today to the Advent candle of joy. We want the Butterfields to come up. Eric Butterfield is one of our deacons, and um, Trish is one of our ladies' Bible study leaders, and their son Matt is with them. And they're going to come read and, and focus our minds on joy as we prepare to worship the Lord this morning. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. will be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I'll be reading from Psalm 118, 21 through 24. I thank you that you have answered me and 
have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Let's pray together. 
It's from Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we lit the joy candle this morning, Lord, and you brought this scripture to my mind, I pray that you would help us to look to you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and know that it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross. You endured the cross in pursuit of joy, of fulfilling the Father's will, of bringing us to you through your crucifixion. Thank you for that, Lord. That is why we are here to worship. That is why we say that you are so magnificent. We see the works of your hands, and we see everything that goes on, and we want to take joy in that. And joy is a term that we toss around so flippantly today, especially this time of year. So I pray that as we think about it, as we see the word written, as we sing the songs, that you would remind us of the joy that comes in you. And Lord, we pray for the people of our body that you would help us to focus on you. God, we are in need of your daily reminder that we need you. As Seth was was telling us this morning that the enemy is real and we need your protection and we need one another to continue to remind us of that, to point back to you, to share your word with each other. And so Lord, we're grateful for our young adult small group God, what have the life that you bring into that ministry, and we pray that you would encourage those folks today with the joy that comes from knowing you. And we also pray for the, for the group at Fisher's Farm. We're thankful for this ministry and the work that you're doing there, and we pray that you would bless them to give them comfort and joy during this season, that, God, that they would look to you and to continue to encourage one another to pursue you, to pursue godliness, to endure to pursue that same joy that you pursue. We pray, God, for Taylor and Sarah Fox. We are so grateful for them and for the whole Fox family. And we just ask that you would bless them this season as they are in Strasbourg, France, in a place where there may be talk of Christmas, that, that there is not much talk of Christ. And as they hold that light out, hold your light out there, we pray for their encouragement, especially among, as they work among the college students there in Strasbourg. And God, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your work. Lord, as you call us to give back to you and in worship, we pray that you would give us cheerful hearts. And we pray that you would bless the offering that's been given this week and that will come in today. And finally, we pray for Grady this morning as he shares your word with us. Lord, we know that you, you do mighty works through your word. And you have given him the words to say this week that we need to hear so that we may draw close to you. So we pray that you would give us attentive ears, attentive hearts, and that you would speak for him today. We lift all of this up in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And first to fourth graders, you are dismissed to kids' worship. First to fourth grade, to kids' worship this morning. Kids are making their way. If you'll excuse my voice this morning, I hope they won't start coughing. I had an allergic reaction yesterday, but you did not want me to take a Benadryl before preaching this morning or... 
we may have a quiet meditative prayer time for the next 30 minutes. So by God's grace, we'll have strength of voice to get through today. As the kids are headed out, I want you to find 1 Peter chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our year-long journey through 1 Peter. We're in the middle right now of Peter's teaching to husbands and wives. What it looks like to stand firm in God's grace in the home. And today we come to Peter's instructions to married men. Now I want to remind us, like I mentioned last week, this passage has relevance for all of us. So if you're not a married man, please don't check out on this text. For the married women in the room, this is God's calling on your husband. This is what you should be daily praying for him to be like and for God's grace to cultivate his life. And when you see God growing him, these are things you can encourage him in. For those who desire marriage in the future and desire to pursue that in their future, these are virtues to be cultivating now. You don't flip a switch when you say, I do, and become different. These are the, these are the character qualities, the Christ-like qualities you want to be cultivating now. But I want to say a word to the singles in our church, to those of who God has called to singleness in life. This is something I did not address well last week, but I want to mention it this morning. Even if God has called you to singleness in life, these texts still have great relevance for you because these show us character qualities to be cultivating in your life. So for the ladies last week, we saw what it looked like to hope in God and to not fear and to develop gentleness. That should be the aspiration of every lady in this room, whether you're called to marriage or not. This is what you're to be like as you pursue Christ-likeness in your life. And I pray that text encourages you to develop those Christ-like qualities by God's grace in your life. And same today for the men, for the men who God has called to singleness what you have here in this text to the married men is a picture of self-sacrifice, of living for God and living for others and not living a life focused for self like our culture holds up for men today. And I pray it will challenge you to grow in your other's outward focus as well. But for all of us, friends, we need texts like this because we're called to live in community. We're called to encourage one another. We don't have to be in the same stage of life to encourage one another and to pray for one another. So we need to know God's will for every season of life so we can live in community and help one another pursue God's grace to be who we are called to be. Now, with that in view, we come to just one verse today that Peter passed for husbands. But this one verse is strong. This one verse is forceful. This one verse is packed with meaning. So as we read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, I want you to be looking for quite simply, what is God's calling for husbands. What is God's calling for husbands? So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and they'll have the words on the screen for you. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your unchanging word. God, we thank you that you have shown us who you are. You've shown us who we are and our need for you. You've shown us what your will is for our lives. Lord, as we come to texts like this, we're reminded of how far short we fall and how much we need your grace to be changing us and shaping us and transforming us to be who you desire for us to be. So we pray today you'll take your word and you use it to encourage us where we need encouragement. Use us to bring conviction where we need conviction. You might be sanctifying us to be your people that can bring glory to you. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to mention to you up front that this, the reality of this command here is frequently neglected. This very straightforward command has been ignored by many professing believers who are men. It has been rejected by many heroes that we even look up to in the Christian community. 
Some of you know I've studied missions over the years. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is many of the people we hold up as missionary heroes and people who've done great things for the gospel have totally abdicated their responsibilities that are laid out in this verse. They've completely disregarded this command while seeking to do great things for God. For example, if you're familiar with William Carey, the guy who was the springboard for all of Protestant missions, who God used in a mighty way to open the eyes of the church around the world to the need for missions, the guy who took the gospel to India and changed that whole culture, yet he was a man who failed to live out this verse we just read. He threatened his wife. He was harsh with her. And he was so impatient with her that when she was pregnant with a child and struggling to go on a boat ride across the ocean to India, he actually abandoned her and left her on the dock alone, saying, if you're not going, I'm going out. And he abandoned his wife on the dock. She eventually changed her mind, and he went. He left her on the brink of starvation. She literally went insane alone because of his failure to live out 1 Peter 3, 7. But he's not the exception. Hudson Taylor, who opened up China to mission, he saw his family as a hardship, so he sent them away at times. His wife got cholera after having a baby, and he failed to provide care for her, and he literally left his wife to watch her baby die in her arms. David Livingston, who opened up Africa to missions and popularized missions in the late 1800s, he abandoned his family because they were slowing him down in gospel work. Of the 17 years Livingston was married, he only lived with his wife four years, and she literally died an alcoholic alone as he abandoned doing what 1 Peter 3, 7 does. But it's not just missionaries on the field who struggle with it. U.S.-based pastors struggle with this, too. Some of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer. We even have one of his books in the Resource Center. He's, a person close to him said he only made mediocre attempts at loving his wife and his kids. His wife had to learn to cope with being lonely. And after his death, she remarried. And when asked about being remarried, she said, A.W. Tozer loved Jesus, but now I have a husband who loves me. And I share all that, friends, not to badmouth those who have gone before, but as a caution to us, as a warning as Seth mentioned, there's a very real enemy who's trying to destroy us, who's trying to destroy the church and wants to destroy marriages. And the reality is there's many Christian men today who are doing the same thing. No, it may not be as extreme as letting your wife hold a baby that's dying of cholera and not do anything about it. It may not be as extreme as not ever caring at all. But many Christian men today still abandon their wives and still abandon their kids on the altar of their work, on the altar of their hobbies or their their secret sins or their addictions to whether it's social media or gaming or whatever else on the altar of pursuing their own interest. So men, today, as we look at this text, this text is a mirror for us, for the Holy Spirit to use to search our hearts, to say, Lord, am I being like this? Am I, being, am I seeking to grow in grace to do what you've called me to do here? Or am I like many of those who've gone before who am sacrificing my family on the altar of whatever else it is that I am loving more? With that in view here, I want us to look at our text today. And as we start in our text... I want you to notice the continuity here with what he says. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Peter says, likewise, husbands. Now, likewise, he means he's addressing a new group here, but he's also showing there's continuity. The idea is not completely different than what he has just said. And what's the continuity here? He's showing you the same understanding of marriage. The ground of what he just said to the wives is going to ground what he says to the husbands as well. The same truth, the fundamental truth about marriage that shaped what he told wives to do is going to shape what he now tells the husbands to do as well. We mentioned it last week, but it's so important. I want to remind us of what this foundational truth is that warrants this likewise. And that is God made marriage for a specific reason. And unlike the lies of our culture, it's not primarily our happiness. It's not for self-fulfillment. God gave us marriage to be a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. I want you to see that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
And because marriage is made to be a picture of Christ in the church, that means the roles God has given to women and the roles God has given to men, they're not arbitrary. They're for a purpose of fulfilling this mission. That's why we go back to Ephesians 5 and verse 23. You see what that purpose is. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his Savior. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then in verse 25, the role of husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice those as's in there. Husbands do this the way Christ did it, because you're picturing that. Wives do this because you're picturing the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So what is God's calling for husbands to fulfill this role of picturing Christ and the church? Well, in verse 7, if you go back to what Peter says, is not what we would expect. He's just told women to submit or to follow the servant leadership of their husbands. So you'd almost expect Peter to say, likewise, husbands, lead your wives. He doesn't say lead your wives. He has a completely different focus from what we'd expect him to say here. Now, why? Why is he not talking about leadership here? Because I think Paul Tripp nails this well. He, Paul Tripp's a biblical counselor, and he just, I think, describes why Peter takes us a different direction. He says, you would expect if the wife is called to submit, the husband will be called to lead. But that is not the command. The command is to love. Maybe that is because God understands our tendencies. What we really struggle with is not being in charge, but we struggle with is self-sacrificing love. You catch that? The reason he tells us not to lead your wives here is because our struggle as men is not trying to not be in charge. Our struggle is we struggle to do self-sacrificial love. So the command here of verse 7 is a command all about sacrificially loving your wives. Men, this is a call in this verse to sacrificially love your wives. Now let me remind us what love is. Because there's a lot of confusion. If you've been around Gateway, this is not new to you, but it warrants repeating because we hear something so different from the culture. Love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. It's not something you fall into or fall out of. Love is a choice you make to give of yourself for the good of another. Love is a choice you make to give of yourself, self-sacrifice, for the good of another. So what Peter is telling us is the calling of husbands is to daily choose to give of yourself to sacrifice for the good of your wife. Your first priority, apart from first pursuing God, is not primarily your job, is not primarily your hobbies, your rest, your recreation, your entertainment. It is a calling to give of yourself for the good of your wife. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't see the word love in this text. Well, the word love is not in this text, but the idea of love and what it looks like to love is all over this text. And it's in the two commands that you see here in verse 7. Go back to the very first one. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, this is an easy one to pass over. Sometimes they say to live with your wife respectfully or considerately. And a lot of men read that and go, great, I've got this. We live under the same roof. And I even put the toilet sink down for her. I am good. First Peter 3, 7. I got this. But that's not what this text is about. This is not about living under the same roof or putting the toilet seat down. This word live means to dwell together. This word live is the Greek word that means to commune together. And friends, you don't dwell together on accident. You don't commune together if you're not intentional about doing that. It takes intentionality to commune, to dwell with someone. And that's what Peter brings out in this next phrase. Likewise, husbands, commune with your wives, notice this, in an understanding way. Now again, our English translations don't quite do justice to that because the Greek phrase literally says to commune with your wives according to knowledge. This is not about understanding. We read that and we're like, oh, understanding. I'll try to be compassionate. She's had a hard day, so I'll be nice and I'll go unload the dishwasher. That's not what this is about. 
This text says to, to commune with your wife in an understanding way, according to knowledge. Commune with your wife according to knowledge. That means you're to pursue knowing her with great knowledge. Well, knowledge of what? Peter doesn't say, but I believe there's three things that are part of this knowledge that we're to have. Number one, to commune with our wives, we have to have knowledge of God's will. We need knowledge of God's will. Remember, God had this specific purpose for marriage that we looked at in Ephesians 5. So if we want to love our wives well, men, we have to understand God's plan for why we're to do that and how we're to do that. And so we need the knowledge of his will for marriage, for family, for what our priorities are to be, for what holiness looks like in our lives, what our priorities are to be with our finances and our time. We need God's will if we're going to love our wives and commune with her. So, I mean, if we think of that and we realize, man, I'm really lacking in my knowledge of God's will, what do we do? We run back to the scripture, the only place we'll find the will of God. So when we're told to communion with our wives according to knowledge, that first of all is knowledge of God's will. Second of all, that is knowledge of your wife. Knowledge of your wife. What do I mean by that? I mean, what are her dreams? What is she, how is she doing hoping in God? What's she been reading in scripture recently? What are her struggles? What sins are hindering her walk with Christ? What does she enjoy doing? What helps her rest? What does she do even this week when you guys were apart doing separate things? Do you know your wife? And the reality is many men cannot answer those questions that I just ask. What is your wife's greatest fear? What is your wife's greatest dream? What does she hope to do in five years? Many men cannot answer those questions. And if you've been around men enough, you've heard the answer. I just don't understand women. They just don't make sense to me. But one of the authors I've been reading this week, Daniel Doriani, he said it so well. He said, a man does not need to understand women. He needs to understand his wife. Husbands are scientists with a very narrow field of inquiry. Oh, I thought that was rich and good. Men, yeah, you may not understand women, but you don't have to. But you have to, by God's will here, understand your wife. That is your command to know her, to know her hopes, her dreams, her fears, her desires, what helps her rest, what she needs. And so, men, do you have knowledge of your wife? If you realize that it's lacking, what do you do? You go talk to her. And you ask those very questions that I just mentioned. Some of us need a date night this week to sit down and ask our wives some of those questions we may not have asked in years What's your greatest hope right now? What's troubling you? What's your fear? What burdens are you carrying right now? How can I help? So to commune with her, to dwell with her, to love her well, God says you need knowledge of his will. You need knowledge of your wife. And number three, you need knowledge of your own sin. You need knowledge of your own sin. Because the reality is, husbands, you and I are the greatest threat to our wives. Let that sink in. The greatest danger, the greatest threat to our wives is our own sinful tendencies. Now, some of you have been around me a while know one of my favorite books is a book called The Masculine Mandate by Richard Phillips. We have it in the Resource Center. Some of you have even studied it with me. Richard Phillips says this in that book. He says, when Scripture says that a husband must embrace self-sacrifice for the sake of his wife's well-being, this, of course, includes her physical safety. But the main threat against which a man must protect his wife is his own sin. The main threat against which a man must protect his wife is his own sin. Richard Phillips goes on to say, I used to think that if a man came into my house to attack my wife, I would certainly stand up to him. But then I came to realize that the man who enters my house and assaults my wife every day is me. Through my anger, my harsh words, my complaints, and my indifference. As a Christian, I came to realize that the man I needed to kill in order to protect my wife was myself as a sinner. Friends, that hit home to me years ago when I read that because we have this idea, yeah, if someone breaks down the front door, I'm going to step in, I'm going to protect my family, but we're not going to take that same seriously with killing the sin in our life because that is what comes across that front door day after day after day. 
and hurts our family. I mean, if we realize our sin is hurting our wives, whether it's sins of commission, those things we've done that have hurt her, or sins of omission, those things that we have failed to do that has hurt her, what do we do? We run to the Lord. We talk to God about it. We confess it as a sin to him. We acknowledge it as a sin, and we ask God for grace to change. But we don't stop there. We go talk to her. Biblically, when we've sinned against someone, even if it's a sin of, of omission, not doing what we're supposed to do, we've sinned against our wives. We need to go talk to her and confess that and repent on that. We need to study scriptures to grow in this. And then we need to get into community to get other brothers into our lives to help us grow into these things. We are not going to grow into being men like this on our own. We need one another to help. So what is God's calling for husbands here? Verse 7, live with your wives with deep knowledge, knowledge of God's will. Live with your wives with knowledge of her needs. Live with knowledge of your own sin. In other words, we're to love her well by knowing God's will so we can lead her. We're to love her well knowing her needs so we can meet those needs. We are to love her well by knowing our own sin so we can protect her from ourselves. We know all that so we can lay down our lives for our, <coughs> our wives for her own good, which is love. But there's a second aspect of loving your wives well here that you see in this. And the second part of this command is God calls you men to honor your wife. God calls you to honor her wife. Verse 7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Notice this, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You are to show honor to the woman. Now, some translations say you're to respect her. That's too weak of a word. That's not what Peter means here. Honor here was a financial term from commerce. To honor something meant you found something of a great price and you valued it. He's saying in your heart when you look at your wife, you see something of great value, of infinite worth there. You value her, you prize her, you desire to be with her, you want to be with her, and you love her. And when you view her that way, from the overflow of the heart, what comes out of your mouth changes. Notice the command here is not to honor her in your heart. The command here is to show honor. And then that's a big distinction. Some of us may honor our wives well in our heart, but we really struggle to show honor. The command here is not to feel this way about your wife. That's a start. The command here is to express that feeling to your wife. So how do you show honor? You show honor in what you do not say. You show honor in what you do say. In the terminology I love you, there's things you put off and there's things you put on. What do you put off? You put off complaints. You put off criticisms. You put off harsh words. You put off what Colossians 3.19 tells us to put off. I think there he is. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If we want to honor our wives, we put off anything that is harsh. But then what do we put on? What do we replace it with? Replace it with kind words, with affirming words, with words that build up, that edify, that encourage. And friend, men, don't miss this. Those words we put on are to be done both publicly and privately. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 28 and 29. This is a text about what an honorable, godly woman looks like. Many of you have read Proverbs 31, but notice there's a part of the husbands in this text. Proverbs 31, 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Verse 29. What does the husband say? Here's the husband's quote. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. The husband there in Proverbs 31 is honoring his wife, doing what Peter commands here, showing honor to her. Men, this is a lesson we need to take. When was the last time we privately honored our wives in this way? When was the last time we publicly honored our wives this way? You saw Seth do that beautifully this morning when he was reading to you and talking to you about his plans. He was honoring his wife. That is an example for us of what we are to be like. We are called not just to honor, we're called to show honor. But Peter takes an interesting twist on this command here. He does something really strange here. When they go back to verse 7. He says, showing honor to the woman. Now, just stop right there. Again, our English doesn't quite do justice to this. The word woman is not here. 
in the Greek language. What he actually says is showing honor to the feminine one. Sounds strange, right? That's probably why they changed the translation. He says, show honor to the feminine one. He's saying, honor your wife for the way God made her to be a woman, feminine, very different from you. In other words, honor her for what makes her uniquely a woman and different from you. Yet, men, if you think about our selfish tendencies, what do we do when our wives are different than us? We don't honor. We get mad. We get frustrated because she feels differently than us, or she thinks about a situation differently than us, or she acts in ways different than how we would act. And Peter's saying, don't get mad because she's different. God made her different. Honor her for those God-given differences. And that's exactly what the next phrase comes out, the phrase that trips many people up, showing honor to the feminine one as the weaker vessel. Now, what in the world does that mean, that we're to honor the feminine one who is the weaker vessel? Now, let me start with what it is not, okay? This is not spiritual weakness. You look all throughout Scripture, you see held up as examples godly women of faith, some of whose faith far outpaced their husbands. This is not spiritual weakness. This is not intellectual weakness. We all know that many women are much, much smarter than men. Julia graduated at the top of her class. I did not, okay? There are... Things about many women that God has given us are much smarter than we are. This is not an intellectual thing. This is also not moral weakness or a propensity to sin. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are in need of God's grace. And just because a husband and wife struggles with different sins doesn't make her weaker. We just struggle with different things. This is not spiritual. This is not intellectual. This is not moral. What does it mean by weakness here? There's two things that scholars believe Peter means here. Number one is the physical aspect of weakness. Now, bear with me here. Let me explain. Yes, there are exceptions. But generally, men men tend to be stronger, men tend to be larger, which is why historically sports have been separated. Peter is saying to the men here, don't take advantage of the fact that you may be stronger than your wife. You may be louder than your wife, but do not take advantage of that. You are to love her, you're to honor her for the way God made her as a woman. And so there's never a place for a Christian man to threaten, to use violence, to use harsh words to his wife. There's no place to physically threaten or verbally threaten because she's the weaker vessel physically. You're to honor her femininity, not take advantage of it. There's a second aspect of being the weaker vessel, and that is the emotional aspect. And so let me quickly clarify here and hang with me on this one. What does it mean in this one? Again, there's exceptions, but as a whole, women tend to be more emotional and tend to be more willing to be vulnerable than men. Now, that is not a weakness. That is a strength in and of itself. Tom Schreiner, a great New Testament scholar, he said this, in many ways, the vulnerability of women in sharing their emotions and feelings demonstrates that they are more courageous and stronger than men emotionally. He's right. When women as a whole tend to be more willing to share emotions and be more vulnerable, that is a strength, not a weakness. But why is it listed here in terms of a weakness? Because that means sinful husbands can take advantage of her emotional willingness to share, her emotional vulnerability, and use it to their advantage and to inflict great harm with their words. And Peter's saying, don't go there. God has made your wife, perhaps, like other women, is more emotional. Don't take advantage of it. You're to honor her and love her, not use that for your own selfish purposes. And Richard Phillips in The Masculine Mandate says, when a man cherishes a woman, he not only nurtures her, but he also protects her so she feels safe from verbal abuse ridicule and scorn, especially his own, for these are darts that pierce her tender heart. And catch that. When a man cherishes a woman, he not only nurtures her, but he protects her so she feels safe from verbal abuse, from ridicule and from scorn, especially his own, for these are darts that pierce her tender heart. So Peter's saying women aren't weaker in this, 
But because God has made them to typically to be more emotional and vulnerable, husbands who are acting in sin can take advantage. I said, don't go there. Honor her for her willingness to feel emotions and share emotions. Don't use it against her. And when we do this, friends, when we honor our wives this way, we are loving her like Christ. Again, we've seen it in Ephesians 5, but Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. I want us to go back there. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then in verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What Peter's telling us when he says to honor your wife, he's saying to nourish and cherish in the same way Christ does the church. So back to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, <coughs> showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now that's the what we're supposed to do. Now Peter turns and gives us the why of why we're supposed to do this. He gives us three big motivations for why we're to live this way. Because this is countercultural. This is counter our sinful nature. So why are we to do this? Three motivations. Number one, because of her God-given status. We're to do this quite simply because we are acknowledging who she is before God. Verse 7 here. Notice this next phrase, since, here's the reason, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Friends, this was radically countercultural when Peter wrote this. To tell women that you're equal to men, that was not what the Roman culture held up or espoused at the time. And he's reminding Christian men that your wife is equal in worth in God's sight. She's equal in importance in God's sight. She's equal in receiving the promises of God. And all the the beautiful talk of inheritance in chapter 1, she is equally going to receive that as well. David Helm, one of the authors I have enjoyed reading on 1 Peter, said this, They are like you, the very bride of Christ. They too have been bought with his blood. They also are the majestic ones in whom God delights. Therefore, men, take care. Your charge is of eternal value and is priceless in the sight of God. Men, remember how God views your wife. He loves her. She is a child of God, and we are to treat her as such and pursue self-sacrificial love for her in the way Christ serves his church. She belongs to God, she's loved by God, and she should be loved by us. So why do we do these things? Because of her God-given status. Number two, because God will discipline us if we do not. Because God will discipline us if we do not. Men, this next phrase in 1 Peter 3, to me, is one of the most sobering phrases in all of Scripture. Look at the warning to husbands here. After he just told you to live with your wives, commune with your wives in deep knowledge, we're to honor her, not just honor, but to show honor to her. Now he says this last phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Let me just quote you what Richard Phillips says about this again. He said, God is saying to husbands who receive the privileges of covenant headship, but also the obligations, do not think your relationship with me is unaffected by your relationship with that dear woman who I've given you in marriage. If you are going to neglect your covenant obligations to her, do not come into my presence claiming my covenant obligations to you. And let that sink in. What God is saying here, according to Richard Phillips, is if you're going to neglect your covenant obligation to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, to know her with deep knowledge, to know God's will, and to know her, know your own sin, you're not going to show honor to her publicly and privately. He says, don't go march into God's throne room demanding God do what God said he would do if you're not going to do what God has called you to do here. Is that serious to God? If we fail to love our wives like Christ, God promises here to ignore our prayers. Men, there may be some of you in the room who feel distant from God, who feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, who you feel like God has forsaken you or abandoned you. Could it be that you are not loving well the very person God has put in closest relationship to you? Why would God hinder our prayers for this? Friends, when God disciplines us, it's not punitive, it's not because God's angry at us. He's doing it to be restorative to us. 
It's redemptive. When God disciplines us, and in this case, disciplines us by letting us feel distant from him, by letting us see our prayers not being answered, he's doing so to bring us to a place of repentance, not to punish us. He's trying to get our attention. This is what Hebrews 12 describes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. It's a text we know well about discipline. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Men, if you are in Christ, God loves you. There's nothing you've done to make him love you any more or any less. And if you are not loving your wife well, God doesn't love you any less. God's not shaking his, his face in heaven and being like, can't believe he did that. He loves you, but he's got better for you. So he will discipline you, including not answering your prayers, to bring you to a place of repentance so you can enjoy being who he's called you to be. A few verses later, you see this in Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is doing this not because he's angry. He's doing this because he wants to see the fruit of righteousness in your life. So why do we sacrificially love our wives? Because she belongs to God. Because God loves her. We do it because God will discipline us if we do not. But there's one more. It's not from this text, but it's that fundamental idea behind all we've been looking at. Why do we love our wives like this? Because it causes the gospel to go forth. Because it causes the gospel to go forth. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. We saw it earlier, but let me take us back to there. This mystery of a man and woman united for life and marriage is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Men, God wants your wife to better understand Christ loving the church by watching how you love her. God wants your children to better understand Christ and how he loves his church by watching you. He wants your believing friends around you in the church and the community to better understand Christ and the church by watching you. And he wants your lost friends, perhaps even your lost children, to better understand the gospel by watching you. Men, how you love your your wife, like Christ loves the church, has the potential to help others around you understand the gospel. How you love your wife is a great apologetic for the faith. So let's bring all that together. Here's the charge for you married men this morning. Husbands, God calls you to pursue loving your wife for her good and for the gospel to go forth. This is God's calling you as men. This is why he has put you in this place to lead your family. And so you can love your wife, so you can pursue loving her with deep knowledge, deep knowledge of God's will, <clears throat> deep knowledge of her, deep knowledge of your own sin, a, a desire to honor her publicly and privately. He's calling you to do this for her good and for the gospel, for your joy, for her joy, and for his glory. He's calling you to live a life not focused on yourself, not consumed by your work, not live for your hobbies, your entertainment, your recreation, but to have a life consumed with living for God. And that includes this very tangible expression of choosing to sacrifice for the good of your wife. So men, I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing loving your wives like Christ loved the church? And so the reality is I need to grow in this, and I suspect you do as well. And in the areas where we're falling short, like I mentioned earlier, God doesn't love you any more or any less based on how you're doing on this. Your acceptance before God is based solely on what Christ has done for you. And from that place of knowing you're held by God and loved by God, you can now find the strength by God's grace to, to grow in these areas. To so men, you're like me, you're a fixer. You want to fix things when you realize that we're falling short in areas. This is not a call to fix things or to try harder. This is a call to grow in knowing God and his will. 
This is a call to study Scripture so it can sanctify you and shape you and grow your thoughts. This is a call to pursue community and resources that will help you grow. This is a call ultimately from that place of knowing your love by God and finding strength from Scripture and from prayer and from others to now step into a place of finding joy in loving your wife. So would you join me in praying this week that God and His grace to us would sanctify us, would grow us to be men who love to pursue loving our wives for their good and for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that shapes us, that changes us, that corrects us. Thank you that you love us too much to leave us lost in our sins. Thank you you love us too much to leave us <coughs> where we're wandering. And Lord, we pray today that you would be using your word to shape us and mold us. Or for all the men in the room, I pray you'd be, regardless of our marital status, I pray you would be shaping us to be men who want to serve you and serve others. Men who are not living for selfish pursuits, but living to bless other people and ultimately to see the gospel go forth. And we pray once again for the women in the room that you would be developing within them what we saw last week, a hope in you, not in earthly things, a trust in you that leads to them to have a gentle and quiet spirit because their confidence is in you and not in their circumstances. Or we confess we can't manufacture things like this, or we can't manufacture these hopes, we can't manufacture these attitudes of our heart, we can't manufacture these actions that love others in these ways, but you can. And so humbly, Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill each one of us this week, to convict us where we need convicting, to change us, to grow us, to shape us, to be molding us to be more like Christ. For your glory and for our joy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song, Behold Our God. Nothing.
Father, we have just sung our confession, our belief that you do reign forever. Lord, you know we struggle to live like we actually believe that. Or something our lives are full of anxieties and worries and fears and just feeling unnerved or anxious. Lord, I pray this week that that confession we've just made in words, that you reign forever, would be the anchor for us this week. That we would not be an anxious, a fearful, a troubled, a hurried, a busy people this week. We'll be a people who rest in knowing that you rule and you reign and you are holding us and nothing can take us out of your hand. And let that be the place from which we seek to grow in all areas of our life as we seek to live lives that will bring glory to you. So we ask it all in Jesus' name. Gateway members, if you want to head to the gymnasium, there'll be two lines of pizza and drink for you, and then we'll have our annual member meeting. God bless you.